from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from Huntsman Hall, Wharton School, Philadelphia, on a full-on, no-bones-about-it, balmy February morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing fantastic, despite the crazy craziness of having, I don't know, is that May outside? Is it June? I don't know. It's 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 it's, <clears throat> it's odd, certainly, like how uh, we'll enjoy it. weirdly warm and humid it is we'll here enjoy in Philadelphia. We'll enjoy it apparently snow is on the way tomorrow, so let's oh, just soak wonderful. it up while we can. Wonderful. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We're here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. If you're listening live, you can join us. The number to do so is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us. It's especially a good way to reach us if you're listening one of the Four times we're replayed. Five five times we're replayed. Five times between now and next Wednesday will be replayed. If you're listening and inspired, drop us a note. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. We actually pick up email during the show as well. Matt Johnson, our producer, is there for your phone calls or your email. We sometimes collect them and respond to them real time. So if you'd rather drop us a note than call, that'd be just fine. So... Eric Bradlow is away today. Audie Weiner will be joining us shortly. You have Shane and Kate at the moment. We have open lines for the next hour. We have guests, guest segments coming up at the top of next hour and the bottom, the last hour, last half hour. We have Jeff Luno. We have a conversation we had with Jeff Luno while we were in Houston last week coming up at 9 Eastern, an hour from now. And then we have Jeff Ma, the inimitable Jeff Ma joining us for the last half hour of the show. That's what we have ahead. Shane, we had a delightful time in Houston last week. It was amazing, actually. So we Fantastic. Didn't, we didn't do our normal live show on Wednesday. Instead, we did a live show Thursday afternoon from Radio Row at the convention center. They had all set up. It all was a real spectacle, man. Sirius has a gigantic operation down there. They it's did. It's really impressive. They, of all the media outlets, it seemed to have the biggest footprint in, yeah. the, in the convention center, which was saying something. Yeah. No, and it was just such a, I mean, it was for me, it was a really kind of, unique kind of moment because i mean i've never been to the super bowl and i've never certainly never been to radio row at the super bowl and right. to just have kind of childhood heroes milling about <laughs> or rushing about as you know between different radio segments was pretty pretty amazing right it was it was good fun and and you, you, you know you think about i didn't really know what to expect from radio row but it turns out that that is where everybody was yeah. in the days leading up to the super bowl because they had the big tv sets kind of outside but they're not they're not real accommodating for in-between production. But Radio Row is basically just a big floor of the convention center with ESPN set up in one place and CBS in another and Sirius yeah. in a third. And people are just walking around between interviews. Entourages are hanging out while their people are being interviewed. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was like, oh, yeah, there's childhood hero Doug Flutie. Just, oh, and who's he talking to? Oh, that's Antonio Brown. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good fun. It's good fun. And Saw that, Archie Manning make a pizza. <laughs> that was the most bizarre moment. That was odd. One of, we, Walking we, we in first and seeing Archie in, Manning we're, making we're, a we're pizza. We're trying to find our colleagues, and we're and they say, well, just walk down to the Papa John's booth and hang a left. And we're like, okay, Papa John's. And you walk, and you look for Papa John's, and you walk into Papa John's, and you realize at the Papa John's booth- Is actual Papa John. Is Papa John. And 
one of the Mannings, of course, and it was Archie Manning. And Archie Manning was in an apron next to Papa John, and he was dressing a pizza because that's what you do when you're a former NFL quarterback. That's right. That's right. Or fa- 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 you know, father to at least one Hall of Famer. <laughs> Pro- yeah, probably two. One and a half in expectation. Yeah, one, one and, one and a half Hall of, Hall of Famers. And we we were speculating on what what inspired Archie. Why why is Archie making pizza? At, well, you at know, the Super Bowl. I, I, yeah, it's uh, it's it's what I mean, you do. It's what you do. Well, it's what you do when you apparently have not saved well for your retirement. <laughs> is what you do. Well, they weren't paid as well back then, right? <laughs> it's true. It's in true. In the seventies, they weren't signing. It's these true. Quarterbacks weren't making twenty million. Yeah, no, a there's year. not a lot of money in that family, so I can understand why you'd be making slinging well, pies. I mean, slinging Peyton, pies. Peyton is a disciplinarian. Yeah, I mean, it could be that he yeah. thinks his dad needs to earn a little something. Yeah, that's he right. Work for his right. Work for his allowance. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think Archie just sort of applied for that job? Do you think there was an inside <laughs> track on that, or do you think, uh, yeah? I think it was an inside job. I do. I don't think that was an open call. Okay. I think he might have had a little right. something going for him yeah. in that application. Yeah. Well, the other the other fun, you know, just proximity celebrity sighting that we got was um, at dinner. So yes. we were in Houston, and Houston's actually very well known for for great food, and we felt like the Super Bowl the thing to do it would be go to a steakhouse, and so we went to. A big uh, well-known steakhouse there in, in downtown Houston after the show, and we got the 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 pleasure of being set right next to Terry Bradshaw and Jimmy Johnson. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. So we we, we just kind of hung out with those. We didn't. I mean, this is greatly over over <laughs> exaggerating it. Kind of hung out with Terry and Jimmy. Yeah, you know, I mean, dinner. we hung out in proximity of Terry and <laughs> we Jimmy. Looked That's at pretty, them. Yeah, <laughs> we looked at them while yeah. we drank our wine and ate our yeah. Snack. Um, anyway, that was, and that's, that's part of it. Part of the fun down there is, is just kind of being in the mix with all that stuff. And Houston really kind of blew it out for the game. And, um, it was good fun. Anyway, any, any takeaway, any final takeaways from that, from that experience? Well, other than, I mean, you, you know, other than the experience we just described, I mean, the Jeff Lunau, uh, conversation was fantastic. I mean, that was that was actually the highlight of the trip, and it's kind of ironic to say that because it was somewhat of a was, non-football highlight. It was it was, it was it was a baseball highlight, but you guys should really look forward to that interview coming up later. We all felt great about that segment we did. Jeff Jeff dropped by, and we spent about half an hour talking to him. We'll run it more or less straight straight as we taped, it, except for some polishing our 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 pro Dion Simpkins is doing on it. You're going to hear what we did there. And Jeff was entertaining and forthcoming, and we were unusually professional. And <laughs> <laughs> just kind of you guys won't believe it. <laughs> so, general manager of the Astros, yeah. he'll be he'll be coming up at the top there. All right, so that's the setup, Shane. Yeah, that's probably what you most remember about the game. Is that right? Is, yeah, is there, no, is I mean, I mean, the game itself was kind of a disappointment after all that buildup, right? Yeah, there just really wasn't much to report from the weekend itself. Honestly, I've never seen a game like that. I mean, that's the most amazing game I've ever watched. I'm in not my life, sure anything. Yeah, this is the thing. Of, that, that, I mean, again, most people hate. I understand. Everybody hates it. And it was interesting for me to watch. Let me tell you a little bit about the scenario by which I was watching the game. I, I get very nervous before big games where my my you know the team I most favor is which involved. is surprising because you don't you kind of are anti nervous in the world. At least you want to <sighs> give off that facade, vibe. It's a thin facade, but yeah, that's right. I, I I do give off that vibe, and thank you for confirming it works. But uh, in 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 reality, I'm I'm a nervous wreck. So basically, you go into a closet. You don't let yeah. people watch you watch the yeah, game. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, or or I mean, I thought the master plan was to I'm going to go to a. Kind of a friend's party where I know that, the, you know, basically I'm going to be the only one there that cares about the game. This is kind of a group of friends that aren't really into American sports, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I go there and, and expecting casual, just casual for me to be the number one fan at the game, at the party. And I was. 
It's just it turns out even casual fans really hate the Patriots and really, <laughs> really enjoy when bad things happen to them. Oh. And bad things were happened to them for about yeah, the first right. 40 minutes of that game. It's almost, yeah. Maybe yeah, mm-hmm. basically. So that was that was... That was unpleasant. What did that? What did that look like? Let's just let me just enjoy okay. that for a little yeah. while. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. So let's. I mean, what, let's what were they? It. What were they doing to you guys? Um, well, what you guys were being me. Yeah. Um, you were the only Pats fan. I was the only oh Pats fan. Did you stay there for the whole game? I did. Oh, jeez. I did. Did everyone else leave? <laughs> was it no, you they were there for like the halftime show, and they're like, "Oh, maybe there'll be some commercials after halftime. We'll want to watch." No, I mean, they everybody stuck around and. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself, but they did very much get into the game by the end. I think yeah. we sold them. Uh, I, I think several non-American football fans were sold on American football fans after well, that well, game. Well, look, people lack reality TV, and, if oh, they, I mean, and, and, and sports that's right. at its best is trumps any reality TV you'll that's ever right. see. I mean, I, my brother used to get into, like, you know, the Hawaiian Open golf tournament on Sunday. If, if, if there were a couple guys coming down at the end, yeah. he couldn't care less about golf. He would mock me for golf, but then... You know, if and, on and Sunday that, it's close, even right. even a normal tournament, people will get into it. Yeah, and so so I mean, you know, first I mean, it would basically be everything. So every time something bad would happen at, with the Patriots, which was almost every play in the first half, um, they'd be like, "Oh, there, there you go." You know, I, I, they'd be screaming at me about That's that. Hilarious! They just were up in my they were, face. They were. So, yeah. So how did you act when things? Turned? Yeah, and then there's the whole Trump thing came up often. About how this was, you know, Trump's team, and and oh. and you know that that that's what you get. <laughs> That's what you get for aligning with Trump. Like, didn't, like I, like I'm aligned did with they Trump. Think, did they? There's this notion of the just world, belief in a just world. And, yeah, you know, people no, have been studying this in psychology really and it's want just, to. Yeah, they no, want I, to I mean, believe that. They want to believe it's a just world. And and if they were yeah, on that this side was of karmic things, retribution somehow yeah, for so. our nation's choices, were being exacted on the patriots. Uh, yeah, well, in that, that first half, didn't exactly work out well. No, and then it turned around. It really, I, and I mean, it was, it was so, it was. I mean, in retrospect, it was really fun to watch. I mean, at the time, I'm not even sure. I at least in, near the end, I actually was even enjoying myself because you know they actually were getting close and things were looking. But before, I was just like, oh, let's, just, you know, my friends were like, oh, now we're just cheering for a shutout. I mean, they weren't even just cheering for the Patriots losing. They didn't want the Patriots to score any points. I'm like, oh, thank goodness they got a field yeah, goal. My, my my buddy Rufus had a ticket for. Pay the Pats at exactly nine points. Wow. He paid two hundred dollars. It was a five hundred to one offering, a prop wow. bet. Five hundred to one prop bet. The Pats would yeah. score exactly nine, and they had nine for a while. And that thing would have <laughs> that would have paid a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. So he was pretty bummed by the comeback. Well, you know, too. you had to know that wasn't going to stick. <laughs> it would have been extraordinary. I mean, NFL the way NFL works, even in blowouts, teams score late. Yeah. But that's anyway, right. it was a fun. It was a yeah. Fun and I mean, that's what it was kind of looking at. The same. It was looking to me like, oh, the Pats are kind of going to, you know, add on a few garbage time points here. Yeah. And then I'll spend the rest of my life trying to convince people that game was closer than it actually was. <laughs> right. That that was kind of my thinking for most of you in the okay. second half. Okay. You know, especially after they scored that first touchdown, I'm like, oh, maybe this is something. And then they, cl- you know, the extra point Clanked gets clanked yeah, off yeah, uh, like yeah. upright. And at that point, I'm like, well, okay, I, I have gotten enough cosmic signals now that the Patriots there are not going to win this game. There were a lot game. of cosmic signals. So so Brady did not look sharp. Receivers were dropping balls. Yep. I mean, what's the take on why the Pats look so shaky for the first quarter? Two I mean, half, I mean I, I, I've, I've watched a myriad of interviews, as you might guess, after the game. I mean, Edelman talked a lot about how they were doing sort of some weird cover schemes. that the I, I think the whatever the Atlanta Falcons was bringing defense. defensively, they were um, – it was it was uh, it was something the Patriots somehow weren't expecting. Yeah. And also, I mean, pressure. I mean, like, obviously, it's amazing how precise that the passing game of a professional 
NFL game is. And so I think Brady just being sort of thrown off a little bit yeah. um, was was somehow enough to kind of. So those two do seem to be two of yeah. the big stories of the game. One, the defensive line of the pass rush really interrupted Brady, and and he, and any quarterback is changed by that. Yeah. But he really was brought down a few notches yeah. by that. And I mean, and then, that is kind of the story of how you – the one way you challenge Brady is right. you bring a ton of if, – right. if you can somehow bring pressure with your regular four. Was, they were doing it at four. Yeah. But then, but then the, here's the thing. They ran out. They faced 90 yeah, offensive plays. Got, it was the second most offensive plays ever, I yeah. think, in an NFL game, next right. to 93 or something. 90 offensive plays. And you just can't do that. You don't have – you don't have enough defensive linemen right. to rotate through there to maintain that kind of rush. And when they couldn't pressure him anymore, it was a very different. It was yes. a very different. Oh, and then he just the, started cutting them apart. The other thing you mentioned that that really stood out. We, you know, you're watching the game. You can't see what's going on in the secondary, and most of us couldn't process what's going on in the secondary anyway. But you could see that Brady was holding the ball like a you know, like a freshman quarterback in college or like a rookie. Yeah. They, there was just no. There was no rhythm to his yeah, timing. He he right. went completely flat-footed at this one moment. Yeah, and I mean, he was missing. Wide, I, even when he wasn't getting pressures, he was missing open receivers and stuff like that. It was very uncharacteristic of the Pats. And obviously on defense, they had a, they had several meltdowns. I mean, you know, Julio Jones was just, like, running all over them. And, and Devonta Freeman the as Fre- well. Freeman was having a good yeah. game there for a yeah. while. I mean, just big, gaping chunks of yards. Oh, my goodness, yeah. So Adi, Adi's joined us. Adi Weiner. Statistics professor, colleague, collaborator. I, I haven't gotten to the good part yet. Oh, we were God. just kind of recapping the game. For, for our listeners, I just wanted to know, um, I, I intended to come late into the studio this morning just so that I could miss Oh, yeah, Shane's like we weren't going to talk about this And then, for the of course, he reminded hour. me that he'd be gloating for a yeah, while longer. Yeah, you thought I'd get, over, <laughs> get it done with in the first 11 Adi, minutes? He, you should have seen the way he entered. He skipped into the room. You know, Shane's usually waking up until oh, about noon. Oh, my goodness. Noon. I'm usually so grumpy on he's Wednesday mornings. He's usually waking up until about noon. He walks in here. He's beaming. He's a little hop in his step. He, ba- he, ba- he bounced I, I, through I don't the know door. if you had, to sh- you had a chance to share your personal Super Bowl experience, but I, uh, my daughter had a show, which was great, and, and then we came back to the house just as the game was starting and my other daughter came in from New York and I told her that she's going to have to take an Uber to the bus because I'm not getting up to watch yeah. to take her and after the halftime and, um, and listen you know I had to work folks I had to work so for me oh, that yeah. involves like watching, I, watching the football I'm tenured professors really well, have no, to work during the second to, to half watch sports, a, and I yeah. just want to make it clear oh I thought you had to work <laughs> no I, no, I had to work by watching the game that was yeah. my job for the night yeah. so after the halftime I said, I said to my daughter you know I'm just going to take you it's a half hour what am I going to miss <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no, but I got and I got back yeah. and I'm sitting there and it's. Did it's you have on the radio? Did you bother? I didn't. Oh, it was halftime, and then by the okay. time I got, it was twenty eight to three, and I'm thinking I didn't miss a thing. Yeah, I sit down and then I'm just you know I don't really necessarily have a horse, and I did forecast as you remember. Uh, we all think we all did um, on Wednesday uh, on Thursday when we were in Houston. We all forecasted that the Patriots would win, so I figured you know I might as well let's see him come back. But it was, I think it was about 99% plus yeah, pe- percent pe- probably. 99.7 according to SPN. Yeah, Brian, that, uh, that, Brian, Brian's model, model, Brian Burke's model. Yeah. Like people, some, some folks think that's a little too extreme. I think even Brian thinks it's too extreme. My personal story there is I, t- I walked the dog. So yeah. the, 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 Pats were driving and they settled for a field goal to go which, 28 Which, by the way, seems insane. 12. Well, 28-12, so at least it's two scores, but I mean, it's two scores plus yeah, two I mean, point conversions. But I remember yelling at the TV, oh, yeah, that'll do it. That's what I yelled <laughs> at the TV okay, when so they kicked I, that field goal. I take that moment to walk the dog. It's like, a, that's not a long thing. It's like 10 minutes. I come back and it's 28-20. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> All right, then. We got, something, we got something going on. All right, we have a phone caller, Jackie from Pittsburgh. Jackie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Great show, guys. Thanks, I, man. Uh, I was just curious. Uh, the last couple drives of the game, you know, in in fourth quarter, and then the first, the final drive of the game in overtime. 
Why didn't that coach call timeouts? That's what coaches do in basketball. You could tell that the defense was on their heels. They couldn't. They couldn't think. They couldn't think to stop Brady. It, it, they were just out of touch. But I mean, do you guys have any statistics on? Stupidity. I'm sorry. Well, no, I mean, I mean, I mean. Well, I mean, just just to clarify, I mean, I mean, you're talking about Dan Quinn, the Atlanta Falcons, co- uh, Falcons coach, Falcons, um, Falcons, Falcons coach. Um, and uh, I mean, so yeah, I mean, that's a by the end, like on the last Patriots last drive uh, to tie the game. I don't think Atlanta had any timeouts they, left. They but did. You, they did eventually use up all their timeouts. But but uh, but they sir, also used one on a on a. Oh, maybe they did a actually. Yeah, that's right. They it, lost one on a challenge. That's right. Um, on the Edelman challenge, yeah. uh, Edelman catch. Uh, but your your point is even more valid in the in overtime where they basically had a refresh of their timeouts. Right. Why did the Why did the um, Falcons not call at least one timeout? Because their defense was clearly gassed. Maybe right. a timeout wouldn't have mattered, but it. it Given you've got a lot of timeouts in overtime and, and the Patriots are marching down to basically win the game, why not? I mean, right. I, I think it's a completely legitimate question. Jackie, Whether we can bring we any analytics the to bear on that, I'm not sure. Jackie, appreciate the phone call. That was Jackie from Pittsburgh. If you want to give us a shout, you can. one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So I want to just ch- uh, toss out a couple stats for you guys. The first no. one we tossed out just before the call, which is the 99 plus, 99 minus or so probability of winning, which is an ex- obviously an unusual event, but it happens one out of every hundred or so football games. Um, That's or, math. Or if you have an opportunity. <laughs> so it's it's not, but here's another, here's one. Uh, Ryan had an insanely good game. Yeah. And by this Matt quarterback Ryan, yeah. quarterback metric, who was he had one forty four quarterback rating. Apparently, though, I saw this in, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, historically, quarterbacks who have had over one forty, that's happened about three hundred and fifty times. I think that was the number that I saw, and they've won three hundred and forty times out of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Matt Ryan had an absolute. No, he lost. Talk about game. ninety, lost almost ninety nine. But this is the way he's going to be remembered. This he's lost the game st- by taking that. This sack. is how stupid we are, just in general, about quarterbacks in football. You know, ten years from now, as people reason about Matt Ryan's record, they'll say, "Ah, he's zero and one. He's zero and one in Super Bowl." Yeah, right. He'll get credit for the loss, essentially. That's right. Instead of so, now the other thing that that I, that I wanted to ponder here, the we've been ta- I've been talking about my Jets, and they're actually they're one hundred and fifty. We've all we've all really been spending some time, and, and, on and them. every yeah. time they, they play, they play, they play a tough match, and I would say you just got to take chances, and so. One of the things that I read about Atlanta is they, they had this idea they were going to be aggressive, and that worked for the first half. But they weren't able to switch into, now we have a huge lead mode. Now what do we do? They stayed in there. Yeah. We're, tr- we're mm-hmm. trying to, we're yeah. the underdog, we have to w- compete mode. Yeah. And yeah. that seems to be a massive managerial fa- fa- failure. It's it's, it's interesting, uh, it's, though, because I've, I've seen so many. I mean, not, yeah, no, no I've, kidding. So, there's so many games where it's the it's exact opposite narrative where yes. you know, a team's up, and they took the foot off the gas, and the other team came back, and they're like, oh, man, they should have stuck with their game plan they should have you stayed aggressive you hear that often. so you hear much. that a lot you, nine, nine to one yeah nine to one you hear people saying oh they, they should have why did they change why did they yeah. go to, you know why did they go to slow down i mean i think i think the argument to a certain extent has merit here uh, audi's argument does have merit here in the sense that like i mean oh, they, they, were, they were running i mean i mean you know yeah, the they were successful running right. in the first half that's right and they did not run in the second half and that you know even if they weren't successful as successful running in the second half it would have killed a lot more time than they did yeah agreed 
So, you know, I mean, obviously people specifically point to that last drive that Atlanta had during regulation ha- time when they basically they, – they, Julio Jones made that amazing catch. They're down the Patriots 22. They basically just have to run it three, three times. times. They're in field goal range. They choose not to run it. They lost. They lost on a sack. They lost I mean, they, all, they did run the first down. But you don't have, you don't have holding down. penalties on and running plays as nearly as much on passing plays. So right. Well, right. Was, yeah, no, I mean, the fact that they called passing plays on second and third down was what kind of in the end doomed them, especially that draw. But what I'm what I'm focusing on is the decision making process. So it's when you're in the underdog, you want to be aggressive. That that's the basic mathematics. You got to take some chances. Now you don't have to take extreme chances. I think one of the things that we generally have observed is that accumulation of small chances is, is far better than than mega chances. You know, one in ninety nines or and one in hundreds are, are not the way to go. More like one in twos, one in threes. And but they weren't able to switch to sort of say, okay, now we don't have to be completely non-aggressive, but just do the, the basic things like get that field goal. Mm-hmm. They just didn't think. It's, I don't it's, think. It's, I mean, I do think it's tough. To, I do think it's tough. It's got to be tough to run a team and have to go back and forth between those two. And it's one. It's one of the things that some coaches are very much about. Everything we're going to do is aggressive. Every policy we have is aggressive because we think aggressiveness pays off in football. And that I kind of. I think that's. I, I agree with that. So that's first order, and then to be to be to be able to switch is it feels kind of second order. But if but so I think it's hard. We have to acknowledge that it's hard to to switch philosophies like that and to ask a team to switch mindsets because you're you're talking about fifty three guys out there or forty mm-hmm. you know however many are suited up, and anyways but but who calls but, the place? But the, the ultimately offense, the offensive coordinator. So that, that I agree. But and I go back to Shane's thing because they were having success on the ground. It's not like that would have been a slow down or conservative way to go. I mean, that extreme because yep. because you know that they were, they were they tearing were, them up basically. Yeah. They were rushing like five, what, five point three, five point eight against the league average four point three. So yeah. that's thirty three percent above league average on rushes, and they and there were some big gains as well. And so yeah. it and then Shanahan of course gets the head job at San Francisco, the offensive coordinator. Yeah. He that was in the queue apparently. But um, here's the thing. I, again, I, I don't. It's so easy to criticize play calling. I mean, we see we see eighty plays called a game, seventy five, yeah. eighty plays called a game, and fans. There's nothing fans want to criticize more than play calling. I think there's some fair criticisms here, yeah. But it also feels a little bit cheap. I mean, I they're, they're going to get something wrong. They did. How many things did he get right? Yeah, in that exactly. Game that and, and, not- and I mean, you really. I mean, it's he, you. You can point to. Maybe two downs where it was an you know the, again not running it on those second and third down of that last drive was a mistake, but I mean they they were they coached a great game yeah. they played a great game yeah. Yeah. about a twenty things went right yeah. for the Patriots to somehow accomplish that. Well, consider the catch. Yeah, I mean consider that Edelman, right? Catch. I mean. It's it's one of the most extraordinary events you'll ever see on a football yeah. event. It's like the immaculate reception. Okay, yeah, that was, was incredible. No, no taking anything away from it. But when the Falcons had the ball, Julio Jones had what I thought was the one of the most insane catches. It was, yeah, it was the greatest catch of the game up until that point. <laughs> well, Julio Jones, yeah, was, Julio Jones was, was an it, athletic catch. It's like he earned that catch. Yeah, absolutely, Edelman's catch was Cirque du Soleil. I mean, it was it just was a strange set of circumstances. I, I look, we, I, we got them both. We got them both yeah. in the same quarter. It's a, in the Super Bowl quarter, the fourth quarter, no less. And yeah. they were absolutely extraordinary. Julio Jones was. You can't make a better. I mean, I thought catch. that it was that, that that reception that Odell Jones uh, had a couple. Odell Beckham. Odell Beckham had that a couple years ago. Yeah. That one-handed one handed grab. Mm-hmm. I thought this yeah. was every bit that catch. Yeah. 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 Okay, but let's do go back to the Cirque du Soleil. So I saw a, a, a fun thing on 
Fallon. Did you know that Edelman and Belichick were on yeah. Fallon the other night? So how that, and oh, uh, can can I just yeah, interrupt you yeah, for a second? Yeah. How charming is Belichick when he's not being asked <laughs> dumbass usual football questions? And he's, he's still, actually a relatively charming, gregarious guy. No, I mean, <laughs> no, this is a I'm speaking out of complete surprise because usually when I see Belichick, it's whenever I yeah. see Belichick. He's like giving like grumpy one word answers to yeah. dumb reporter questions. Yeah. And people, then all you know, but people do say that people. I mean, people love people inside the organization love him, right? Yeah, it's. I mean, I mean, players are probably somewhat scared of him, but <laughs> right? Right. We, the the narrative around him is that he's different. You know, I'm I'm sure the the imperial guard loved the emperor too. I mean, if you asked him, <laughs> that's true. But I don't know. Okay, so Fallon asked Edelman on the show. He says, and Fallon was fun to watch in this because he was just wigging out yeah. still about what great theater and what a great what a great experience it was but he says he says to edelman what how much luck was involved with uh with that catch and edelman he says oh it's about 70 percent luck <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and i love first that he partitioned it into probably you know, yeah. percents and then the second that he acknowledged that it was two-thirds chance yeah and and it, and it was you watch what happens and it was in fact that when the ball was initially dropping it landed on on the leg of one of the Falcons. I mean, it would have hit the ground yeah. initially had it not landed on a leg, and that's when he first was able to get to it. Now, what is the rule in football? The actual rule about a catch? What if it lands on, uh, on someone who's down? And that's and, okay. No, yeah. It, it, if it doesn't touch the ground, it's it, it's, it's fair all about games. the ground. It's all about the ground. Yep. Okay. And the player being inbound. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, he, I mean, the issue is, I mean, it can even touch the ground as you catch it if the if you have control of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, determined that you have control. In this case, it was pretty obvious because he did somehow miraculously get his hand even under the ball, so yes, that it would, did. you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, the yeah. ball never did touch the ground. It, you know, his hand was under it, it was by a, the time he it caught was it. It was remarkable. It was an incredible catch. So everyone's talking now about Brady being the greatest of all time. And that is seems there any dispute? Unassailable. Here's a question let's, for you. How, let's use some statistics. Could, could you could you ever give that title to someone else on the football field? Does it have to be a quarterback? I think it kind of has to be a quarterback, right? And then it's kind of well, the greatest oh, in the terms well, of most. It's interesting. Isn't I was, it, wouldn't you really divide that by position? That's hard. Well, you, you, I mean, ideally you would. I mean, I'll, I'll make ideally an, you would, but we don't do that in other teams. I will. I will make a counter argument. I suppose um, that you, you. I think it can be a different um, uh, position. Jim, Jim Brown gets talked about as the greatest of all time. He was a running back. Yeah, or we Jerry Rice the, gets talked about. Jerry Rice is the greatest receiver of all time. Yeah, we don't but he's, not, he's not talked about as the greatest But, but let me player. let me make an argument even for a defensive player that changed the way the game is played, Lawrence Taylor. Yeah. He, I mean, he was... Yeah, such, I the blind I, side. At, at the time, he was such a force and such an uncharacteristic player yeah. that he really did change the way the football game is yeah. played. So like you could make an argument for that. I mean, Brady is obviously the greatest player of all time. I mean, that's oh, indisputable. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> right, but so I'm, I'm just going to argue that it's conceivable Shane, a non-quarterback Shane, Shane, let's could have make some it. Order, order to this. You started us down the right path. The order starts with you interrupting. <laughs> no, no. I, I, you, you, you went on a launch without yeah. just to say, just to let us all know how much you love Tom Brady. And, I, and you started off by talking about some criterion, and I want to bring you back into your roots here. Mm -hmm. So you, your your observation is to be the greatest of all time. You have to stand no, out in some critical, no, well, I mean, yeah, critical yeah. way. Yep. So, so if I, if I, if you like, say, say, let's let's bring the, the the conversation to baseball. Now, why would I do that? All right, so let's do that. Shocking people. It's hard, by the way, to divide a pitcher 
pitcher but hitter. But if you had to say who's the, the greatest, if you really had to put it on the line and say who's the greatest baseball player, it's hard to get past Ruth because not only was the possibly the greatest hitter, he also played pitcher, but he also revolutionized the game. Okay, and and having all those together is really what it takes to be the greatest of all time. Okay, so when you brought up um, Lawrence Taylor, you you had a, you had a purpose, which was he changed the game yeah. in a deep way. So let's let's now go to Tom Brady. Tom Brady certainly is probably the most successful quarterback of all time. I don't think there's well certainly Shane isn't disputing it. Um, I don't know whether no, whether no, he can. no one. But could. did he change the game? What did he do to the to football? I, I don't, I don't accept I, well, that. I mean, the, I you, you've turned it around on me. I, I said you brought it up. Well, okay, but let me clarify. <laughs> Changing the game is one path one, one, to being the greatest yeah. player of all time. Another more obvious path is being you know kind of being better un- than everybody unequivocally else. like in terms of outcome and you know basically stats. The best quarterback. Of okay, all so but is that entirely based on the five Super Bowl wins? Is there any it's numerical the four thing that we MVPs could... in the Super Bowl? Yeah, it's the fact that he basically has you know it's it's getting to the Super Bowl seven times. Number of wins, number of yards, number of wins, things like winning percentage. Um, I mean, I saw one stat like I wow, think it was how, how uh, traditional. So uh, well, I mean, let me give you let me give you some proportions, right? Lots of dimensions here. To be you know, fair. like like in in games where quarterbacks throw fifty plus passing plays, yeah. Brady is something yeah, like eighteen that. and five. The next highest quarterback is four and. Well, nine. you got to break that down for our listeners. Why 50, 50 more passes is a bad thing. Well, it's usually you're behind if yeah. you're throwing the ball that much. Yeah. Okay. So not only was and, and Super Bowl Super Bowl fifty one was his fifty first. Comeback victory of his career, is that right? Yeah. Okay. But nice. is that is that a function of the fact that when you have Tom Brady, you just pass more? Sure. And so that yep. conditionally, usually but for most quarterbacks, he's he one of the very often, few quarterbacks that you can build such an aggressive passing game around. What else do you think distinguishes him? Why is he such a great quarterback? Uh, I mean, I think what what he makes a, him, he has a good arm, but not not, not a great. No, no it, it's it's sort of he's, his, he's able to mobile, check down. He's, he's, he's able to check through multiple targets. I, I think it really is kind of like it's it's something relatively hard to quantify. I think, but I think when he's in the pocket and he's a, he's able to go to his first first target, nope. Second target, nope. Third, he can get to like his fourth target, mm-hmm. which is why you've always got. That's I mean, it must advantage. be so frustrating to watch that, like you know, they've got him. There's pressure, and all of a sudden he finds Edelman or he finds Amendola, and like yeah. you know, makes makes the first down anyway. Yeah, and it's incredible. Yeah, I mean that that is that is the amazing part. All and right, the fact well, he's 39 well, years old, guys. Well, he's going to be around for a little bit longer. I think. Not much. We'll, well see. We'll, we'll see. see. So that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We're going to, I'm sure, continue to talk about the Super Bowl and a few other sports as we continue the show. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics come to you live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern from the Wharton School. Huntsman Hall, Locust Walk, University City, Philadelphia. That's just across the school kill, West Philadelphia. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my, with my buddies, Shane and Adi. Eric is away doing Eric things. Eric will be back. Eric hasn't left the show. There is no resignation despite the rumor. <laughs> he'll, he'll be back around. Dion Simpkins on the soundboard this morning. Missed Dion in Houston last week. He was here making sure everything was connected and playing correctly. <laughs> Matt Johnson on the board. Also, Matt Johnson on the phones, that is. You can reach Matt. You want to you jump in here, ask a question, make an observation. 
claim Brady was not the greatest, is not the greatest quarterback of all time. one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us businessradio at com. Businessradio at com. Matt will pick up your email. He'll even pick it up in the middle of the show if that's the way you want to go. We've been talking about the Super Bowl, of course. We're going to talk a little bit more. We're going to pick up Jeff Ma an hour from now. Jeff will have a few things to say about the Super Bowl, I'm sure. But there at the end, we were talking about Tom Brady and all the conversations, kind of consensus, obviously, best quarterback of all time. There's really not much debate about that. But it, it, it's interesting to me that, you know, we weren't in studio last week, so we didn't have a chance to reflect on the, on the Australian Open. Mm-hmm. And coming out of that final, the men's final, uh, was another greatest of all time conversation. Both finals were kind of like going back in time well, a little bit, right? They, they were, the women's final was, no question, the greatest of all time. Right. There's, there hasn't been much debate in a while about Serena Williams, and it was an amazing, I mean, general great tournament, and, and obviously two great finals mm-hmm. with the Williams sisters on the women's side and Federer and Adal, another Federer and Adal, yeah. first one in seven years or something, um, on the men's side. And people people who, who pay attention to tennis say that people were, were talking about that match as not just a, you know a, a, a great finals, but possibly the most important men's tennis match of all time. And the reason was they thought it might settle the greatest of all time conversation, at least really? for a while. Yeah, because it was there's enough of a horse race between mm-hmm. Nadal and Federer, <clears throat> and they're anticipating the as greatest of all time. As greatest of all time. I mean, I would have thought Federer versus like okay, Sampras or, or, or no. Well, well, you got he's got to clear Nadal first, and there's been debate over Nadal because Nadal has him big time. Oh, and, uh, just and head, head to head, head, head yeah. to head. But there's yeah. an age gap. That, I don't know sure. What, so that so I mean, the younger the count, guy always in, in terms of the no, counting so, so, in terms of the like number of majors and stuff like that. Federer's Federer's no, ahead, right? In terms of head to heads, there's a sweet spot, right? So if they're if you're the same age, you can you can you, it's, you can compare them head to head in terms of competition. But when one player is what four or five years older, then there's a sweet spot where one is a little over the hill and the other is right in their prime. And so then they can rack up a lot of wins. I don't. Is it, I don't does, take that. Does, does the over the that could be counterbalanced by the before their prime era as well? Is yeah. the over the hill is necessarily longer than the flip the before the prime? Well, I, no. I think I think that the steepness of the drop is much better, much bigger than the steepness of the rise on the other side. So yeah, if you're looking know. at differential sure by age, I mean, I think you're in general right, but I think with Federer you might not be. But Federer but, really, yeah. this is what's remarkable about Federer. Federer has not yeah. won. I mean, hasn't played world the high, the greatest in the world class tennis yeah. in five six years. Well, come on. I mean, he's been to the semifinals right, and but, finals of majors, but in he that. hasn't. Played. What do you mean he hasn't been playing? He, he hasn't class. won. I mean, he hasn't. Well, this so guy he, racked I up mean, win after win after win after win. Your statement was that he has not played world-class tennis in no, the no, last world five best, years. World, not world-class, world-best tennis. He, come on, go has, back and play he's, that tape. He's, he, come, he's, he's, come come, he's come within... Um, like a couple points of winning a major several times, you know, more than once in the last five years. I mean, I he, I mean, and and you know, we can argue he as Eric ra- would. What has his ranking been for the last five years? He's not been. He's he was eleven, I think, in this tournament. He hadn't played in a Grand Slam final in you know more than two years. So but he's, been, he has. But his ranking bit. has been substantial. He's not been world's right. number one player no, for it's years. Very, very surprising. And Nadal was coming back from injury as well. The, yeah. e- either one of them were unlikely finalists, and they both made it. And of course, they've had this great rivalry. It's one of the great rivalries in men's tennis. And everyone thought we wouldn't see it again, and we were treated to another one. Yeah. And fe- and it was and it was a great match. It was a five set match. I mean, 
you know, Nadal played a monster semi to get there. Theirs was a five-set match. And on the heels of it, people talk about, well, that kind of settles that. At least at least between mm-hmm. Federer and Nadal, Federer now has an edge. It's not done. Nadal's only 30. He might play a lot more tennis. But at the moment, the edge is pretty definitively, and more definitively than before that mm-hmm. um, on Federer's side. So we have this interesting thing. So two weekends in a row, we have these you know, very serious, viable candidates as the greatest of all time in their sport. And I think that's, yeah. that seems unusual. It's, and I thought that was a, an interesting question, kind of a tough question to structure for you statisticians. How frequently should we expect to observe serious contenders emerge as the best in their sport across all the sports? So it seems pretty rare that we I mean, see these two I feel these like the denominator is the number of sports, right? So, I mean, that's, that's a right. pretty so, limited number of things. So what are we right? interested in? We're interested in the four There's major like U.S. 10. sports. I, I could come up with 10 sports. We're kind of what, what else ten. are we interested in? Yeah, the big, the, the big, the big, four, the big four. The big big four in America. Tennis, plus golf. Tennis, golf. Soccer. Soccer. Um, swimming, probably. Yeah. Yeah, swimming. Because Olympics. Yeah, well, let's add a few Olympics. You know, probably. There's, um, we're swimming, seven. sprinting. No, we're, we're to eight. Sp- spinning and running. Now we're to nine. Swimming and running, sorry. Now running has multiple. We have distance runners. I think people runners. only really care about the sprints. I mean, I mean, the best marathon runner of all time, have we been tracking well, I that? Think, I think... A, well, we sort of. Do. I mean, Not maybe really. some some no. people do, too far, but too far. Somebody, but who are somebody the top in, five in, marathon runners of all times, guys? Quickly, uh, I mean, nobody. I can't name one. They're all from one country. <laughs> no, Sebastian Cohen. Sebastian Co. Right? That you, you're, you're, you're betraying your age. But I think to to take your question seriously, one of the reasons why we we would I think we regularly talk about greatest of all time is that they're just getting better. Athletes, performance, sure. technology, longevity training. of a career longevity. is higher. And longevity yeah. is a very big aspect of the determination. Hey, here's one. Here's one that Shane will love because we're only at nine right now. We're going to try to get ten. Are you talking about a sport here? Horse racing. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's what I like about curling. No, what, we do on, have that conversation we, we with horse racing. We have it in it horses. Was, I mean, secretariat. Here's the thing: it doesn't change. Here's the beauty of horse racing: it's more apples to apples across yeah. generations. That's right. And the reason it doesn't change is that nobody cares about it anymore. <laughs> Like, I mean, we basically, there was Secretariat, and now we don't care. <laughs> Come on, man. American Pharaoh, Triple Crown winner. There are, there oh, are I mean, if you invite me to the care. Kentucky Derby, I'll go. It looks like a hell of a party, but nobody cares about horse racing. Come Shame. on, guys. Come on. Shame. So much fun. Shame. Come on. I'm already there looking forward to care. May. May. Come on, man. We got, what happens to May? Which one's that? <laughs> You're, you need to take that weekend off. You're fired from the Kentucky Derby show. All right. Fired. All right. That's, that's okay. That's okay. Okay, we have 10 sports. We have 10 how about, sports. How about cards? Poker, no, greatest of all on. time. Come on, no, that doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, that's we like cards. We think cards are interesting, but no one cares. You know, about the you greatest know what? What time. Shane introduced us to. Well, let's share it with our, our listeners. Video games. Yeah, esports. esports. I mean, it has been going all time. To greatest of last time. We should we should start sowing those seeds because we yeah. will do a show on that. Yeah, and yeah. people, if you're not a gamer, you don't you don't know. And I'm not a gamer, but I've been told, and it, it's, no, ga- it's clearly coming. Esports is 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 going to really hit the big time fairly soon. To, and that's, that's, and al- already it's it's you know already you see it on ESPN. Already you see you know there's there's a few different kind of. You know, but but we're certainly like it, it's in its infancy to sir, so to talk about the greatest of all time. I got no, another one. Clearly yeah. not, but chess. We talk about the greatest of all time without a doubt. That's Ma- true. Ma- actually, I mean yeah. Magnus Carlsen, possibly greatest of all time. Mm-hmm. I can name chess players. Yeah, we call. I think we could all get five pretty easy. Oh, I don't know. About that. <laughs> <laughs> niche, pretty niche. Kasparov, okay. couple other Russians. <laughs> Karpov, Carlsen. 
It still strikes me as unusual. Bobby you guys Fisher. can run some kind of Poisson model with waiting times, but yeah. what, how often should we no, expect I mean, to have I, this I mean, conversation? Yes. No, I mean, I, I think what this conversation, is, in my mind, has convinced me that it does not happen very often, and, <laughs> right. and to have it kind of stack up like this, I mean, where had, you've seen Serena, you know, Serena, Roger, I mean, basically, I mean, tennis fans must be delirious right now because they've got basically the two greatest of all time playing mm-hmm. essentially at the same time mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. pretty amazing so do, do are we are we are we just constrained by our age that it feels so obvious to me that Gretzky was the greatest hockey player and Without Jordan, a doubt. And no, Jordan I, I, was I the greatest think, yeah, basketball that's, that's player right. I mean, that's right that's I guess we have LeBron James in the in the conversation I think now. yeah that's right but I mean, we but, have, has there been anyone talking about anybody else in hockey Lemieux. A lot of there's a lot of conversation about Mario Lemieux. Anyone currently? Uh, Sidney Crosby would be the closest, and I mean, he certainly. I mean, he would have to put together. But the kind of stats that Gretzky put up, and hockey was it's less comparable across generations, unfortunately, but. The kind of stats that Gretzky put up are just like you know. I mean, it's it's it would be the equivalent of like Dimaggio's hitting streak in right. baseball. I, mean, or something I feel like, like that no one be... has that conversation in hockey. Like hockey no. is done. It's, it's like well, there's no I, talking I mean, about the greatest in hockey. He was, he, did, he did stand out in in a way that I don't think he might stand out compared to second. Um, more than there's any, whoever stands out in, in any another, other sport. In other sport. Compared to yeah, that's right. So is is it consensus Messi now in soccer? Does he does he eclipse Maradona yeah, or and Pelé? Pelé? I mean, no. I, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about soccer. And I don't know about how do we soccer evaluate history. I mean, how do we just how do we actually make a determination? And, 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 yeah, in unfortunately, you don't have kind of the like counting stats and stuff like that that is, r- makes it really easy to determine. I mean, like as you look at, I mean, I can look at videos of Maradona, and I encourage people to do so because he, he was amazing, uh, or Pelé or whatever. But I don't know how to put him next mm-hmm. to Messi on the same field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's fun. I mean, I, I'm frankly a little bored by those conversations sometimes. But I thought it mm-hmm. was interesting that Federer cinched his current position, yeah. at least relative to Nadal, and then Brady cinched his for a long well, time. Okay, it's be a so, long time till another quarterback does what he's done. Right. And can I can I can I go hot take for a second <laughs> on this show? Of course, Shane. When well, you right. define it afterwards, though. we've been discussing greatest of all time within sports. Brady Grace of all time across <laughs> sports. No, no, I'm going to get on. away from that. I'm, no, I, you're, you're, you're not too even giddy. Engage you're too question? giddy with this. I, I will, I will engage in question, but I think you have to have the, a much bigger gap between one and two. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be the greatest of all time across sports, uh, how do we even do that? This is reaching the really. Absurd I mean, you, you can. Well, 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 okay, let me. Let We're me, not drunk okay. enough for this conversation, guys. Come on, well, that's, that's <laughs> speak for yourself, my friend. <laughs> but um, speak for yourself. But um, I mean, the way I would, uh, anal- I think it's interesting to analytically approach it. What you what if you could somehow quantify this, you would do some kind of like standard deviation from the population, like how far in the tail they are. I mean, and I agree, it's. When you're talking about the extreme parts of a tail, it's almost impossible to actually right. estimate that, right? So I, I concede that this is actually an unanswerable question. But that is how you would approach it. So one of the th- one of the th- well, this is Wharton Money, but let's remind everyone: if you want to jump in here on a topic perhaps other than greatest of all time, give us a ring one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We have guests coming up at the in the next half hour and then in the, in the last half hour as well. Shane's going soft-headed on us about the Pats and Brady. Oh, I mean, okay, fine. It reminds me a bit of... Motivated reasoning is just so difficult to avoid, even among analysts and statisticians. And, Are and, you questioning my objectivity yes, with regards on, to the Patriots and football in general? <laughs> you know, we all... You have to know your weak spots, Shane. Mm. You have to be aware. <laughs> you have to be aware of these traps. I mean, I usually wait for other people to inform me of my weak spots. I guess that's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, so that's cool. 
Well, so you know what is mine, Shane? You can tell me mine since I'm told you yours. What well, is my weak spot? I, I feel like what your, your resistance I? to Brady as the greatest of all time <laughs> is a clear weak spot, a fairly obvious and immediate weak spot. What's the more pervasive one for me? Austin, oh, Texas. College Texas football? Texas Longhorns, exactly. So college recruiting signed up, uh, finalized last week. So signing day was Monday. It was Wednesday. So the day we traveled down to Houston was the big recruiting day in college football. And there are a few stories there, and it's and we might as well note it because it's mm-hmm. a, you know it's a big it's a big it's a big moment in college football. So, guess, were there guys, any kind of surprises? Well, here's the thing: guess, Alabama just, had the best recruiting <laughs> class of all. Exactly. Let me well, we, that, we, that was make the, a yeah, Shane, yeah. look how much we've brought Audie yeah. along. Let's no, he have, knows. Just, I know. It's I, I mean, I, Audie, I, let's test you. How about number two? Number two. Number two, um, it's, Ohio. There you go. Now, is Ohio the full name of the, of the team? Uh, Ohio State. There you go. <laughs> the Ohio State. The Ohio State, followed by Michigan. Well, you're not too far. Clemson. Michigan, Michigan came in five. Georgia was one of the stories because Georgia came in third. Mm. And that's off of a really disappointing season. And this is one of the reasons I want to bring this up, that I've been listening to Bill Connolly, who, who is the co-host of Podcast Ain't Paid, Played Nobody, which is a great college football podcast. And listening to them talk about the rankings, the theme that came out of it is that the rankings matter not just on the field. Of course, they they stack up, and over time it makes a big difference Mm -hmm. in what you can do on the field. But there's a political consequence to the rankings. So, for example, Kirby Smart is the new head coach. He has has one season under his belt at Georgia. He was a coordinator at Alabama. They poached him from Alabama, brought him in. They fired Mark Richt, who had had a good long run at Georgia, but he had never gotten him over the hump. Mm Maybe by chance he hadn't gotten him over the hump, but he hadn't gotten him over the hump. So Smart goes in there, has a disappointing first season, but then crushes this first recruiting class. Number three in the country, above, above all expectations. And what that does for him is basically soften some of the criticism. That's right. So regardless of the impact on the field, and this will have an impact you know, two, three years from now, there's this political thing that coaches are always navigating. And let me give you the flip. The flip is, of course, and this is why I brought it up, the University of Texas. So the University of Texas had a disappointing class. They in this in two four seven sports has a number twenty six. Mm-hmm. They're typically a top ten. A bad class for them is a top fifteen class, and they're all the way down there at twenty six. It's a transition year, so they have a new coach, Tom Herman. It's not really his class. He had to scramble at the last minute. But here's the motivated reasoning. I'm a Longhorn fan. I'm going to come up with all kinds of excuses for why this happened, mm-hmm. and I'm going to dismiss the consequences of this. Right? I'm going, to, I'm going to very. I'm going to go to great lengths to find out how this doesn't really matter that much. But here's the thing: it takes a little bit of the shine off of Tom Herman, especially if you're if you're if you're not if you if you're not resourceful in coming up with why it doesn't matter, or if you're not really informed, because the really informed folks will tell you, look, this was going to happen. If you're at a bit of a distance, it takes the shine off of Herman, and it hurts him a little bit politically. And let me just, want, I'm going to close it real quickly. Charlie Strong had just the opposite experience. He was the previous Longhorn coach, and he had disappointing seasons. Came into a ton of excitement, though. He, well, it was exciting in the beginning, and then he had a, two disappointing seasons. He had three. But after two, he still doing fantastic and recruiting. Mm-hmm. So signing days roll around. He has great class after great class, unexpectedly good. And what that did for him is it bought him a little more latitude with the fan base. So there was a fair bit of unrest about Charlie between years two and three. He had an unexpectedly good class, and it bought him some latitude and goodwill going into the season. Now, it quickly went away when it didn't perform on the field, but it just strikes me 
that these recruiting classes have these political consequences above and beyond their actual on field. So let me, let me yeah, ask well, you. Let me ask you a, a solid question. I like the, the phrase "motivated reasoning." I never heard that before. It's a big one in psychology. So it's the, the uh, just to, to make sure I can clarify for our listeners and, and for myself. That's the idea that that you you are motivated to find some some sort of. Uh, a theory in the data that may not be there because you really have a drive to find something. Let's put it this way. There, the Tom Gilovich, the Tversky student who's at Cornell and was one of the co-authors on The Hot Hand, and Tom's one of the great psychologists out there, and one of his students and a friend of ours, Erica Dawson. Gilovich and Dawson have a paper on motivated reasoning, and you know I think that's with Tom. It's certainly Dawson. The, 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 the summary they give is when you want to believe something, you ask, can you believe it? And when you don't want to believe something, you ask, do I have to believe it? Okay, interesting, because the antidote to motivated reasoning is a sort of the scientific philosophy, which always asks to the opposite. What, what in the data shows exactly what I that goes against what I want to believe. That's how yeah. you. That's how that's you right. actually. That's this, how we motivate a, a, a hypothesis. It's, it's, it's the scientific method. Unfortunately, we see kind of breaks down because, or it doesn't break down, but doesn't save you because your motivated reasoning still determines what question you decide to right. ask. So I wonder whether or not there's a, when you, going back to recruiting classes, if there's a way to sort of try to be objective about it before you even look at the data to sort of prevent yourself from overseeing in it things that you like. So my question, yeah, formal question, right. is what is it that you look at in it? Yeah. How do you decide well, what's a good? Here's a good analytics question for you. They people rate them on two dimensions. One, just the number of stars, essentially mm-hmm. that, the sum the, of the stars, the sum, the sum of the stars, the average of the stars, whatever. Because recruiting services now, you can there are. It's you know, relatively objectively quantified. I mean, it's qu- as it's, objective it's, as it can be. It's like, quantifiable. It's anyway. quantified. So anyway. there are four yeah. different services. There's a service that aggregates the four, and so you can you know you kind of wisdom of crowds is saying, and it's going to be a pretty good signal on the quality of the player. And then you just roll them up. But here's something that classes vary on. There is an 85 scholarship limit at any given time for a college football team. That's the sum of all the That's scholarships the sum of all that are four, out there among four years. all four years. classes, right. And, and they're, and they, but they're lumpy. You don't always bring in 21.25 players. Sometimes you bring in 19. Sometimes you bring in 25. And players leave. And so it really is lumpy. So, so now you have to compare classes. Let me just give you, for example, this year. Here's the number, here the number of recruits for... The top. Well, let, let's. I'll, I'll. I'll give you. I'll give you. The twenty nine from Alabama, twenty one from Ohio State. So how are we supposed to compare Alabama's recruiting class versus Ohio State's when Alabama's was twenty nine and Ohio State's was twenty one? I mean, you could use an average instead of a sum. Like, and, and as far as those, you know, the, the star ratings but, or whatever. Okay, right? so that's essentially well, the two dimensions that yeah. people work with. But here's the thing. I mean, it cannot be. It cannot be linear in stars, which is what you're saying when you average. Yeah. Right, so two one stars is, is that the same as a two? Or oh a four? no, that's probably true. So no, I mean, a five star recruit probably brings because only how many play, how many players play at a time? Right, eleven. Right. right, so you're looking at you really want to know the number of fives or fours, right? It's, it, but that, I mean, that's probably that drive uh, going too far in the other direction, where because you do need depth. I mean, I agree that you probably don't just want to do a straight like sum or average. But, I mean, you also don't want to completely discount the threes, twos, and one okay, stars Okay, so is my, my, my formal question, has anyone done an analysis that predicts form, performance on the field and how that relates to the number of stars you collect? Or, yeah, or, or the, what's the optimal weighting function it, of exactly. stars as Sounds far like as predicting future success? Yeah. So I can tell you that we, we've played with some of it. I'm not sure we've played with that on, on Massey Peabody. So a lot of quantitative systems, all of them, are going to roll up the recruiting rankings and give the recruiting rankings some weight. It's mm-hmm. not the only input, but it's an important input. And Adi's suggesting an interesting alternative to what most people do, which is just to roll up the average number of stars for that class and then maybe do something for 
um, the number because it's not it's not nothing how big your class is. And Alabama, I mean, I look at Alabama. I didn't know Alabama had twenty nine. Twenty nine is way above quota. And Alabama's the, the 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 NCAA has cracked down on this, but Alabama's famous for taking and not just Alabama but SEC taking big classes and then and then squeezing out. squeezing guys out. So essentially, it's not a four year scholarship, which is not what you're supposed to do. And of course, you have an advantage if you you know you recruit thirty kids a year and then weed out. Yeah, you take some of the variance out of it, right? Yeah, no, it's a great strategy. It's just not the way you treat college kids, and it's against the NCAA rules. But here's Alabama with twenty nine. So I think what and happens NCAA is all about protecting those kids. Yeah. Well, what, what happens is there's is <laughs> thank they, you, Shane. <laughs> well, the NCAA kind of is, but they just I have mean, no, at they, least in they theory, no they teeth. are. Yeah. They have no teeth. But what happens is gray because what happened? I can almost guarantee you what how Alabama was able to offer 29 is that people have left they come in some guys aren't going to get playing time and they decide to transfer and if it's totally that kid's choice fine but if the coach is kind of encouraged to transfer then they're essentially doing and, and i mean like has anybody broken down alabama as far because you could imagine that there are i mean you could certainly imagine coercive transfers where they're sure. like you know no, we don't like you, you go motivated. somewhere else but you could also be like i'm a great quarterback but alabama's already got a great quarterback i'm gonna go elsewhere I mean, where i get more of an opportunity to play yeah shane i mean it's almost like you're you're taking a chance right yeah i want to play for if i can make it to the to the start in alabama yeah. my career as an nfl's made uh, i give it a shot i don't make it i transfer yeah so to this average star rating thing, for example, has some purchase here because Stanford comes in number 14 in the rankings. Stanford has done an amazing job of recruiting lately. They've gotten to where they can reach in and grab almost anybody who has the grades to qualify. If they're And, and they do. They grab five stars right and left. Their class size, 14. Hmm. It's half the size of Alabama. But the average star rating is high enough that if we just went on averages, they would have come in as the number four class in the country. Wow. So it really does matter what kind of weight you put on that kind of thing, and it really does beg the analytical question of what is the right what is the right weight. Right. All right, fellas. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have another half to go. We have two fantastic guests coming up in the second half. So come back and join us after the break. of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics come to you live from the Wharton School every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. We're at the halfway point in the show. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. We bring, are bringing a guest in for this next half hour. While we were in Houston last week, we had a chance to sit down with Houston Astros general manager, Jeff Luno. Jeff has done a bang-up job with the Astros since he's, I think he's been there since 2011. He's very highly regarded around the league and especially regarded for his analytics approach and his ability to integrate 
analytics with more traditional scouting methods and the system he's built first with the Cardinals and then with the Astros. We were delighted to sit down with Jeff, visit with him about half an hour and talk about a wide range of things. And we're delighted to bring that segment to you now. Joined now by Jeff Luno, general manager of the Houston Astros. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. When someone asked me if I was willing to do a Wharton Moneyball show, I thought, why not? I went to Wharton. <laughs> so t- tell, us about your, tell us about your love of Wharton. How, how has it, do you think, influenced your life in the years since? I had an incredible experience there. I spent five years on campus, got a dual degree, uh, finance degree from Wharton, and loved every minute of it. The students there were exceptional. The professors were exceptional. And it really set me up for my, my career when you're able to think the way that you're taught to think at Wharton. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do. And I've had, this is my fourth career, mm-hmm. and uh, I've had success in all of them because of the foundation that was laid when I was at University of Pennsylvania. But Jeff, you were also in the M&T program, which yes. is management and technology. Yes. Double degree in engineering. It's right. And you said four careers. So you're, we know you're in baseball now. Right. I think you wandered through McKinsey at some I point. Did. What, I what, did. What have been those four careers? My first career was as an engineer. Okay. And loved it. Uh, actually put to use the T part of the M&T. Okay. Uh, then went back to business school, uh, went to McKinsey, spent five years there as a management consultant, and then did two tenure before I ended up in baseball. So it's, it's not the traditional path to becoming a sports executive. <laughs> right. But I think my education and my experiences outside of baseball have been really important for me in being able to do my job here. Can you give us an example of that? Where, like, in, in, You're not going to be able to capture it sure. all, but one way in which you think you're better as a, as a professional baseball executive because of your non-baseball experience. I think when you talk about player evaluation, there's a lot that goes into it. You've got scouts evaluating players based off of their experience. You've got the number crunchers evaluating players based off of what they see. And then it really is uh, the economics role of how do you take the output from the scouts and the analysts and turn it into dollars and cents. And you Mm -hmm. need to understand the market. You need to understand supply and demand. You need to understand a lot of things, uh, risk profile of your organization, Mm -hmm. cash flow, valuations, all of that. And those fundamentals are, are really similar to a lot of other businesses and being able to incorporate that thinking has been very beneficial for Mm me. Mm -hmm. When did you first think you might want to apply that thinking to baseball? When I was at Penn, I thought I loved baseball and I'd love to be in sports, whether it was football, baseball, basketball. I wrote a couple letters, one to Peter O'Malley because he had gone to Penn. Okay. Figured, why not? An alumni. Did you play any baseball? Never heard back. Not at Penn, I didn't. I played uh, in high school. I wasn't very good, but Mm -hmm. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, I did join a uh, started a fantasy baseball league when I was at Penn. And this is back in the 80s when the rotisserie, rotisserie <laughs> leagues were just getting started. So right. I could tell you every prospect in every organization back then. But okay. I didn't think I'd work in the industry. Followed it closely. When I was at Kellogg for Business School, I wrote a paper on the economics of baseball. And I actually mm-hmm. wrote a paper about how the Chicago Cubs needed to change their strategy in order to okay. compete consistently. Uh, Only they, took them 20 years to They get didn't it read my paper, but uh, Theo and Jed... Uh, certainly have done a great job. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really wasn't until after Michael Lewis wrote the book Moneyball Mm -hmm. that I received a phone call from uh, the DeWitt family, and they asked me to come out and have a conversation. They had um, looked at what was going on in the industry. They wanted to bring someone in with business and technology background. Jeff, how'd they find you across the big, wide world? Yeah, well, uh, Bill DeWitt's uh, son-in-law, um, and I worked together at McKinsey. 
Oh, wow. And okay. one thing that's been consistent throughout my career, everybody that knows me knows how what a passion I have for baseball. So when I was at McKinsey, I used to take people to Cubs games and White Sox uh, games, and I was doing all these fantasy leagues. So people knew I loved the sport, okay. and I was passionate about it, and I think that's really uh, what it came down to. Okay. And the DeWitt saw that the world was going that way, or that there might be an advantage of grabbing someone from that world? Absolutely. And I think, you know, baseball's an interesting industry. It's very traditional in a lot of ways. Uh, a club who is employing best practices and having delivering above-average results can disclose their secrets in a best-selling book, and <laughs> half the industry chooses to ignore it or actually move in the opposite direction. Right. Uh, Bill DeWitt obviously read it and thought, you know, this is interesting. I believe in a lot of the things that Oakland is doing. I have a bigger payroll. I don't necessarily have the people in my front office that are capable of developing the systems or the uh, analytics that we need to do this, so I'm going to have to find someone externally, and that's mm-hmm. how they found me. Jeff, mm-hmm. give me a sense of timeline. This, this was, was what 2003. Year? 2003. Yeah, so it was just a few months after uh, Moneyball was yeah, written. He reads the book and makes the change straight yeah. away. I was uh, working for, I was president of a, an apparel company on the West Coast and had no intention of leaving. A month later, I'm in St. Louis uh, meeting Walt Jockety and John Mozalock and talking to them about the future and, wow. and started work there. And um, right after that, the ad, it had no, nothing to do with me because I just gotten there. Cardinals go to the World Series uh, in 2004, NLCS in 2005, and win the World Series in 2006. So I thought, this is easy. <laughs> I, I, one of the, I did an analysis, um, which I do in my, my statistics class. We use, we try to predict how payroll forecast wins, and it does that pretty well. And the, the team that's most exceptional is the Oakland A's, but number two is the Cardinals. Right. And you they're out, outperforming their outperforming payroll, basically? their regression, if you yeah. use the statistical yeah. model. Yeah. They outperform their regression. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's they adopted it early. I, now let's fast forward to 2016. Are there any teams still not doing it? At this point, if you look at the transitions in the front offices, all 30 teams, for the most part, have analytical departments. They have general managers that have uh, spoken about the importance of using information and decision-making. So uh, the reality is the advantage that you can gain from doing the money ball approach really has dissipated. It's now a level playing field, which means we all are looking for what the next area of advantage is. And we know they're out there, whether it's in the medical field or the sleep research or mm-hmm. you know, applying the new technologies that are coming into our game. Everybody's working on these things, but some clubs are going to do a better job of finding the advantages and hopefully sustaining them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as you're sort of suggesting, there's a less advantage in terms of kind of the player valuation aspect of, of baseball. Uh, but what about kind of the in-game strategies and stuff like that? Like, for example, defensive shifting sure. is something that's been such a dramatic change over the last decade. I know the Astros are kind of on the, the forefront, leader, I think uh, sure. the forefront of that change. So is there... Is there stuff like I mean, the sh- mm-hmm. def- is there stuff like defensive shifting, like that's still kind of at some of the more forward-thinking? Tell us what that is, and make sure that we let well, no, I mean, you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I think if all you have to do is look at the playoffs from last yeah. year, and you can see one of the big trends in our game is taking the starting pitcher out at the appropriate time and utilizing multiple good relievers to get you across the finish line. And I think the traditional model, I had a great opportunity to work with Tony Larissa for a long time in St. Louis, and he was a, a pioneer, the one who really uh, created the role of the closer. And that profile really stuck there for a long time, and I think it really wasn't until the last few years that clubs started to 
realize, and, and a lot of this had been written about for, for decades, but clubs started to implement using your best reliever maybe in the seventh, maybe in the eighth, using your best reliever at the time when the game is on the line. And I think we saw no better example of that than, than what Cleveland did and mm-hmm. what Chicago did uh, during the playoffs. It was very exciting. So I think most cl- a lot of clubs will try that. But the reality is, you know, whoever wins the World Series or gets the World Series, teams tend to copy them. And we saw it was all about the dominant relievers that Kansas City had. You know, back when the uh, other teams were good, it was the speed or or the great one-two pitching punch. Yeah. So, you know, we tend to exaggerate that maybe a little much. But no, I mean, I think that's right. I think there's sort of always a narrative kind of wrapped around, right. like, the recent success. Some of which Recency is just bias, due, I think yeah, that, yeah. Some, some of which is due to luck, but some of which may actually be kind of a systematic change in the industry. Right. So. But there is a response. I mean, so, for example, the older players... Uh, they just can't react to the shift. They don't. They can't change their right. swing. But I can imagine the new generation of players being, from an early age, ex- taught. You know, you got to spray the ball. They're going right. to just shift against you, and you're, you'll have no career. Mm-hmm. And th- there's nothing better than an incentive to, to change. No, no question about that. I remember we signed Carlos Pena back in I think 2013, and he was one of the most shifted on players in baseball because he's a left-handed power hitter. And you know, I asked him how he dealt with it, and he said, Jeff, you know, the reality is. For a while, I tried to figure out a way to go the other way and to beat the shift. And then I realized if I get a single the other way, that's nowhere near as good as well. I mean, I get paid to hit home runs, so I can't go away from my game. So you've got that dynamic in play. You've also got the fact that these left-handed sluggers, and we also do it to right-handed hitters as well. Which is ha- have complicated. Been I mean, how, yeah. what do you, really? Well, they, they've come up through the minor leagues. They've never learned how to bunt. They've never really tried that. Uh, I think a lot of organizations now are teaching these types of profile players to do some things differently in the minor leagues. So at least they're used to it when they get to the big leagues. So I think there's going to be a natural reaction. Players are going to become accustomed to it and, and figure out ways to beat it. So we're here in Houston with Jeff Luno. Jeff is the general manager for the Houston Astros. Three of the Wharton Moneyball crew, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and this is Cade Massey. Jeff, you're talking about changing the game, you know, trying to work against tradition. You had the chance when you moved from St. Louis to Houston to kind of build things as you wanted to. It must have been different for you in, at that moment than it was when you first got to St. Louis. What are the pros and cons of starting kind of from scratch or having leeway? That's uh, a great question. I remember when I was interviewing Jim Crane, one of the questions I asked him, because normally when you take these jobs, they come with a lot of constraints. You have to keep this manager. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And I asked him, I said, I just let me have it. What are, what are my constraints if, mm-hmm. if I take this job? And he ripped out a blank sheet of paper from the pad he was holding, and he tossed it to me across the desk. Wow. And I still have that blank sheet of paper <laughs> in my office because it was important for me to know that if I came over, we were going to have uh, an opportunity to do things the right way from mm-hmm. scratch. Now, uh, this is a traditional industry of a lot of employees when you take over a baseball operations department. And so there was... Uh, you know, pros and cons of, of that approach. But I think at the end of the day, to be able to look at a clean sheet of paper and think, okay, if we're going to do this the right way, what questions do we need to answer? What information do we need? And how do we design it? Mm-hmm. Was a breakthrough for us. And from 2012 until 2014, our fans were frustrated. We had a terrible mm-hmm. team on the big league level. We were accumulating prospects, but we were pursuing a strategy that we felt was the best for long-term success. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until 2015 that we made the playoffs unexpectedly that our fans and the industry started to recognize that maybe we were onto something. Uh, Was it all worth it at the end of the day? I think so. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of our fans probably would argue with that Mm -hmm. because we did go through a couple lean years. But 
And we really didn't have a choice. We had, we had one of the worst rosters in baseball and we had one of the worst farm systems in baseball. Mm. We had to start somewhere. Mm. And a lot of it, you know, was building the infrastructure, the analytic team, the getting the right scouts in place, the right process, so that as the years went by, we would be able to produce. Were people reluctant to come work for you because you weren't doing the traditional thing? You must have been drawing from a different pool in some sense. Uh, to a certain extent, I've been drawing from a different pool even back in the days with the Cardinals. I remember hiring people that didn't have the traditional scouting experience to become area scouts. Okay. Uh, a lot of different I hired some coaches that didn't have the traditional coaching profile. A lot of those people that I hired back in the days of the Cardinals are now uh, executives and or leaders of various organizations. So it seemed to work pretty well. You can't ignore the experience and the, and the wisdom of the people that have been in the industry for a long time, but you have to complement those people with the diverse set. And I think that's what we did in St. Louis and was able to do that in Houston. And I got to tell you, every time I have an opening, I still get 450 to 500 resumes, yeah, so there's right. not a lack of people raising their hands. Jeff, can we step out of baseball for a second and just ask him? Professional fight with me, Nadi. He wasn't Jeff, asking you. This guy's a, this guy's a football guy. I'm a baseball guy. In the, yeah. Je- Jeff, people struggle hiring, and they mostly don't have years of you know batting statistics on which to base decisions. You, you're hiring people. You're hiring execs and scouts. What is one tip you would pass along for making good hiring decisions? I think the person needs to fit in well with the rest of the organization. One thing that we've done at Houston is every time we bring someone in for manager, director, or any of those levels that are going to interact with a lot of people, we make sure that everybody gets a chance to interview them. Now, we don't, we're not looking for clones, but we are looking for fit. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of smart people out there, but getting someone that has the ability to work well with the rest of the team and to contribute mm-hmm. uh, is, is important. And the best way to figure that out is not to just interview someone, look at their resume and make a decision. It's to let everybody, the, the entire senior team really collaborate on making those hiring mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. Especially when you have a unique club, a unique group yeah, of people. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, so uh, I want to come back actually to, you do, You mentioned fan patience during those lean Please years. Do you kind of feel like fans... Are baseball fans a little bit more patient than maybe some of the other sports? Just because, you know, in baseball it does take longer to kind of overhaul an yeah. organization. Pe- players, ca- players that are drafted are like four or five years away from the big leagues when they're drafted. Um, as opposed to something like basketball where, you know, a, a player can make almost an immediate impact. Right. Do, you think fans, do you think fans sort of, most baseball fans recognize that? And are they systematically a little bit more patient than, say, basketball or football fans? It's a great question. I think fans are never patient, regardless mm. of the sport, because they like instant gratification, as do we all. But in baseball, the fan, the typical fan these days is actually aware of your farm system and who your top prospects are, and they understand that you know, when you go out and you draft a, a player like we did last year, Forrest Whitley, out of Alamo Heights High School in San Antonio, he's 18 years old. He's not going to make the big leagues in the next year or two. But they get excited. They start following them. And so there is a, a certain level of patience baked in because they understand the nature of the process. Also, the difference is that we have a game every night. And in football, you lose a game and you have to carry that all week until next Sunday. You know, we get right back at it and go out there tomorrow right. night. So somewhere in the week, we're going to win a game and people are going to feel base, like things are on the upswing. Baseball is an experience yeah. that, that almost like a family experience that people go to the ballpark. The quality of the team isn't necessarily that 
significant. I wanted to ask you a, a more technical... This is from a Yankees fan. Can yes. this yeah. even okay? That's not <laughs> right. okay. That's not okay. <laughs> yeah, I... All right, let's, 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 let's get, let's get back that to the comment is dripping with entitlement, my it friend. <laughs> uh, one of the things that... The, the, the general question I have as a, as a technical person, although I had played baseball, but nevertheless, what I would... Insights that, that I or my students would bring would be very technical. Um, in our experience, and I mean also Shane as well, is that when we go to the, the team, there's a, a sense that you'll never get this to the to the baseball professionals. If they can't see it, they have a hard time with it. So I want to ask something specific. Catcher pitch framing has been around for a few years now. And when I first read about it, I was very intrigued by it. It's high, highly technical. It's the ability for a catcher to influence the, the call. And it's an observation made almost entirely through data. And the valuation is also made entirely through data. My question is for you is, um, how did the baseball people react to this? Did they, was there pushback, and do you buy it? The answer is yes, there's pushback on any of those things, the shift, the framing, any of the things that, that are new and different, and that's natural. We hired one of the foremost experts on catcher framing, Mike Fast, who had done a lot of research independently prior to coming to the Astros, so we had an in-house expert. I think the key to us, for us, was a couple of things. First of all, our manager last couple of years, is a former catcher. He went to Stanford. His name's A.J. Hinch. And he very much understands the nature of grabbing an extra strike as a catcher because everybody intuitively tries to do that, instinctively tries to do that as a, as a catcher anyway. The, the key for education for us for the catchers was building a tool where you can link the results to video so they can actually see the pitches where they took a ball from inside the strike zone to outside, or presented a ball in a way that the umpire called a strike. And once they visually see it, and then we show them how the data aggregates up to an answer, uh, they were able to look at that, and then the next question is, okay, now what do I do? What drills do I work on to get better at that? How do I get better? One of the greatest examples of a a catcher going from a below-average framer to almost an elite framer was our catcher the last few years, Jason Castro. Three years ago, he was below-average. Last year and the year before, he turned into an elite framer, and that wasn't a coincidence. And I think so. To us, it demonstrated that this skill can be taught even to a major league catcher who's been doing it for a while. Jeff, one of the battles here is influencing those who can either make decisions or implement the insights from analytics. What advice would you have for analysts on how to be more influential? You know, having a better regression right. is not enough, essentially. <laughs> I think the most important thing, if you have an opportunity to work in a club, you get this chance, and if you're outside, you don't. Talk to the people in the industry who are going to be affected by the recommendations that you're making. And try and understand, from a scout's perspective, why they see things maybe a little differently, or from a player's perspective, why they would be resistant to... Uh, whatever it is that you're you're working on, to us that's been uh, a big part of implementation of any program, getting proactively ahead of time mm-hmm. with the people that are going to be impacted, and also getting their feedback because oftentimes you'll get a piece of feedback that your analysis was not really recognizing, and mm-hmm. once you bake it in, you realize that it doesn't need to be that extreme, or mm-hmm. you can soften it a little bit. Uh, you can get eighty percent of the value. Uh, rather than 100% by presenting it in a way and, 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 and a change management program that allows you to really have an impact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Jeff Luno, general manager of the Houston Astros here in Houston. This is Cade Massey with Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. How do you reconcile when the, the gut goes against the numbers, basically, or when the subjective expertise goes against the quantitative analysis? 
that's probably one of the toughest things that, that as an executive, um, I have to do because, first of all, there's it's it's very rare that all the indicators are pointing in the right direction. Right. So you're, you're dealing with decisions where the, the arrows are flying all over the place. Right. And you've got uh, some analytic information supporting one decision and some analytic information supporting another. You've got different scouts with different points of view. And you have to try and aggregate all that and, and come up with a final decision. Um, it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there are times in my career where I have gone against the the information and gone with my gut. A couple of those have worked out. I would mm-hmm. say, um, you know, Joe Kelly is a pitcher now for the Red Sox. Uh, all of our analytic information was pointing towards other players in the draft. Um, I'd seen Joe Kelly. I kind of had a feeling about him, even though he only pitched three innings this draft year. And I, I drafted him, made it to the big leagues, and had a great career. That was, that was a good one. <laughs> I, st- I tend to remember, <laughs> you remember that, that one. one. I remember that one. Right. There's some that I made. Uh, I'll give you another example. Jed Lowry versus Tyler Green. Um, Tyler Green looked the part. Jed Lowry had the performance. They were both in the same draft class. Mm-hmm. Uh, we drafted Tyler Green. And, yes, he made it to the big leagues and had a career, but he has had nowhere near the career of Jed mm-hmm. Lowry. Jed mm-hmm. Lowry was an undersized second baseman and just didn't look the same as, as mm-hmm. Tyler Green. But mm-hmm. isn't the money ball lesson that you're not supposed to go by how it looks? Right, but I did, and it was a mistake. <laughs> you're being human, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the owners here have to have an extraordinary either faith or patience or both to allow you to make these kinds of mistakes and still, you know, keep you around. Right. I mean, professional sports owners aren't known for having that kind of faith right. or long-term view. How unique is that, do you think, in the situation you're in now? And how, how often do you see owners have that kind of combination? I think it's more and more because I think owners, at least in, in our industry, and I think it's in baseball, but it's, I think it's happening in other sports as well, recognize that um, we're playing the odds. And as long as we have the odds nudged in our favor, we're going to have better outcomes over over the long haul. Now, it's not like blackjack. We can't sit there and play a million hands. We mm-hmm. only get to play 10 mm-hmm. to 20 hands. Mm-hmm. But uh, if, if an owner has confidence that you're using the information and you're making the best possible decision, they understand that the outcomes are variable and there's a lot that mm-hmm. goes into it. Um, now, I do... A, a, as much as I can to go back to our owner. And this, this applies to both Bill DeWitt and Jim Crane. Both owners I've worked with have been tremendous. Um, when you make a mistake or when the outcome doesn't go the way you think it should or you predicted it would, you need to go back and say, did we learn anything about mm-hmm. that? Was mm-hmm. there anything in our process that was wrong? Is there any information we missed? And as long as you're doing that and being honest about it, um, you get the confidence that mm-hmm. let's go back. Let's take another, you know, let's spend another night at the blackjack table and see what we get this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this, I, I don't, you may or may not want to comment on this, but you, you had cross paths here in Houston with Sam Hinkie, at least a sure. little bit. And you must know Daryl and yeah, those absolutely. guys. And, you know, often we find that, that guys like yourselves will talk with guys across sports more readily than right. guys in their same sport, right? right? Because it's more sensitive. When you see what happened with Sam, of course, that was in our backyard yep. up in Philadelphia. He seemed to be doing so much that was right from an analytical right. perspective, and things didn't quite work out in the long run, at least not for him. Maybe yeah. for the club yet. You just talked about kind of learning from your mistakes. Do you right. ever learn from other people's mistakes? And what might you take away from Sam's experience? Well, Sam, I, I love Sam. I think he's one of the brightest people I've ever met in sports or actually across mm-hmm. any industry. And his uh, letter of resignation or whatever it was. Famous. Um, was, mm-hmm. you know, clearly he's, he's way more studied. And, uh, <laughs> it was a manifesto than, than in addition to being a letter of resignation. Yeah. I, yeah. I enjoyed reading it. You know, the other um, 
incident uh, or experience like that was when Paul DePodesta worked for the Dodgers. I think he's also very bright and has done a tremendous mm-hmm. job and now is working in football. Uh, both of these guys, I don't know, I can't speak to it, but it could be that it's really, it was a communication um, gap between, you know, they clearly thought they were doing the right thing. And, and if you look in retrospect at the moves that Paul made or, the, or you know, the moves that Sam mm-hmm. made, they set their organizations up right. for success. Right. But were they able to manage all the stakeholders? And I think it's important in our position that we spend the, the requisite amount of time managing the stakeholders, not only the fans, the mm-hmm. media, the, the influencers in the organization, the ownership, all of those stakeholders. And I spend a large part of my job managing those stakeholders. What, what does that look like? Managing the stakeholders. Like, what are some specific things you do when you're managing some stakeholders? That sounds it, it exactly com- right. Yeah, it all comes down to communication okay. and, and being, you know, we decided, uh, Jim and I decided in late 2011, we're going to be as open as we possibly can with our fans. Mm-hmm. And we were having a terrible year in, in 2012. And I wrote a letter that, they, that we sent to every season ticket holder and it got posted on our site explaining what was going on and sort of asking for some, some time, some patience. Uh, but it also is the day-to-day communication. You know, one a very um, influential manager I had at McKinsey used to tell me that in the morning on his way to work, he would uh, think about all the different stakeholders on, on the study that we were on and when's the last time he communicated with that person and, wow. and what he needs to either send an email or a text or call them. Wow. And if you sort of build best practices like that, you'll realize I haven't talked to my owner in a week and we've made a couple transactions I, I should probably reach out explain them mm-hmm. talk about what we're thinking about uh, I haven't called our manager I mean I speak to my manager every day but haven't talked to him in a while or I mm-hmm. haven't reached out to our AAA manager keeping everybody feeling like they're connected is huge it mm-hmm. really is all about communication mm-hmm. how much contact do you have with the manager in the in terms of signing players drafting that used to be the manager's job too yeah and back in the day the manager was the gm and the gm was right. just some some executive who pushed paper around right. um and now it's the gm who seems to really run the team it's 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 a big deal but the manager of course is still the manager right so how does that does the manager kind of input have a lot of input on on, on who you're signing and for, trading and for me it's important because well first of all aj hinch was an assistant general manager he was uh, he's worked in the front office before in various capacities he's super smart and he knows the industry really well uh, i keep him abreast of everything that we're thinking about doing he has input he knows players from a different perspective he has a different network of getting information and so i i incorporate him before we make any decision um, he's almost like having a, an additional assistant GM, which is wow. terrific. Wow. Likewise, if he's thinking about tinkering with the lineup, um, it's his lineup to make every day, and he's the one that makes all those decisions. But um, he'll consult me, and we'll talk about it after games, and he'll always ask my opinion. Uh, do you think I should have done this in the sixth inning? Of course, I don't really tell him at that point. I'd rather wait until the following day or maybe next week because you know if we lost a game, it's not, it's not the appropriate time to necessarily second-guess any decisions. But... Um, we do have a good relationship. It's, it's, it's really important. I've seen good ones. I've seen bad ones in our sport. And having a good relationship between the general manager and the field manager is, is critical. Okay. We've just got a couple minutes left. What are you doing with yourself? What does a general manager do in February? We're busily preparing for spring training. We have Two weeks a, a couple players still left in the arbitration process. Okay. We're preparing for all of our meetings. We have a brand new 
gorgeous spring training facility that's coming online Where is your in, in West Palm Beach. We're okay. sharing it with the Nationals. Okay. We got construction here at our stadium here. Our center field's coming in. Okay. So there's there's a lot happening, and we also are keeping tabs on the rest of the free agent market. There's more free agents still unsigned this year than there have been in years past. Okay. Uh, we, I think the old men people don't really want to hire them. That's well, the, the young. The analytics have said. I don't know. There's still some good. The there's money. still some good value out there. So we're <laughs> we're keeping an eye on it. We're you know preparing for spring. There's there's a lot that goes into preparing for spring training. It's it's uh, the only time of the year where we have all of our baseball operations folks mm. in the same place and all of our players in the same place. So we it's it's it, you know it's nice. I can't wait for it to get going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, we appreciate your being here. Uh, we, we we pull for you guys. We've been watching you for a few years now. You surprised us in 2015. Oh, what, surprise what, the Yankees. Let you, me tell you about what that. What should we expect in two, <laughs> I think 2017? The, what do you think? The, the Astros have a 100% record of going to the playoffs in years when one of our alumni are, are being inducted into the Cooperstown Hall of Fame. <laughs> ah, so nice. we're, we're, we think we're in a good role for this That's year. Great. That's a nice, That's fantastic. Well, nice, That's a street. nice thing for the, yeah. for the Astros franchise. All right, Jeff, thank you. Thanks Jeff for having me on, guys. General Manager of the Houston Astros. Appreciate you being here. Thanks. So that was our conversation with Jeff Luno, general manager of the Houston Astros, last week when we were down in Houston for the Super Bowl on Thursday. Appreciate Jeff making time for us down there. More Wharton Moneyball after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Some combination of the Wharton Moneyball creators here every Wednesday. This morning, it's Cade, Adi, and Shane. You can join the conversation. Jump in here, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Just done with the segment we taped last week with Jeff Luno, general manager of the Houston Astros. Terrific conversation with Jeff down there on Radio Row at the Super Bowl at the Convention Center, technically, last Thursday. We have another guest in this half hour, our last half hour of the show. Delighted to bring on board Jeff Ma. Jeff is a member, was a member, of the famed MIT Blackjack team. You might have seen them in the movie 21 or read about them in the book, Bring It Down the House. He currently is uh, Senior Director for Analytics at Twitter. In between, he's started and sold a number of companies, written... A very interesting book, and we're very pleased to have Jeff on the show. Good morning, Jeff. Welcome. Good morning, Cade. Thanks for being with us, man. It's always a, a sacrifice, you West Coasters. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, it's the price we pay for living in paradise. <laughs> <laughs> and where, where exactly are you in paradise? Is it in Palo Alto or is it San Francisco? Uh, I live right in the city. I live in and San Jeff, Francisco. J- Jeff's way too cool to live in Palo Alto. Come on, man. <laughs> so, Jeff, appreciate yeah, you making the time. No problem. Uh, you caught our eye in particular because of a Wired magazine article you wrote on the Super Bowl, and uh, we want to hear a little bit about that. But in general, how did you how did you take in the Super Bowl this year? What were you doing? I'm sorry, the, my my phone alarm went off, so we had to repeat, repeat that for a second. You you wrote a great piece for Wired, and yeah. uh, curious how you were taking in the Super Bowl, and how did you have a rooting interest yeah. there? Did you get pulled into it? Yeah, I have a, obviously, a, I grew up in Boston or outside of Boston. I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, have been a, a big Patriots fan, um, you know, my whole life. Um, and was, you know, Patriot fandom is, is an interesting thing because 
as a kid and growing up in Boston, you care a lot more about the Red Sox than, than you do the Patriots, um, especially when I was growing up. That was when the Red Sox were tortured. You know, 1986 was, was Greg tortured. years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, For a Yankee was, fan like it, me. It was it was tough, uh, but then I think a lot of my my fandom for the Patriots really changed, um, and was at the pinnacle of the of the eighteen and one season. I was at uh, that Super Bowl. Um, oh my! It was it was actually we were promoting the movie Twenty One at that time too. So I was doing the whole radio row thing, and for me, it was maybe one of the like best moments of my life because I was out there promoting the movie, and one of the other uh, movies that my studio was promoting uh, were the movies that Adam Sandler and Kevin James and Rob Schneider were, were doing. So I basically was touring the entire Super Bowl <laughs> with those guys, walking into every party with those guys. Um, I remember really well that we went to the Maxim party uh, with Adam Sandler and with Rob Schneider. They didn't really know who I was. They just knew I was the guy that the studio was bringing around also. So they were super nice to me. I could have been someone's brother or someone's sister. but. Right. They treated me really well, brought me in all the parties with them, had a great time. We went into the Maxim party, and what was funny was we got into, like, the private VIP area of the Maxim party, and we had the best table there. Uh, we're just having a great time. Everyone that was running the party was so nice to us. And then Adam and Rob Schneider and Kevin left uh, at around, you know, whatever, 1 a.m. And the minute they left, the remainder of us that were still there got swooped out of that spot. They gave our spot to Jerry Jones and Wade Phillips. Um, and it was a moment in time where you're like, wow, this is, this, this is really where I rate in the world. But uh, what, what ended up Rates a lot higher than most of us, I got to say. But it is tough when so, you get kicked out of a club for Wade Phillips, Jeff. That might. Well, Jerry Jones was actually the, the, the real draw there. Yeah. Might've yeah. been, might've been. So, so I'm, so I'm sitting there having had this experience, you know, done the whole radio row thing um, and, and feeling like this is before the movie had come out. So I hadn't experienced any of this kind of stuff yet. Um, and I walk into this, this, you know, Super Bowl, this 18 and 0 team and like doing something that no one else has ever done. Um, and obviously we know what happens and it was probably the most disappointing uh, thing for my fandom. I, went uh to the you know i had a bunch of friends that worked for the patriots so i went to the official patriots team after party celebration in quotes after party right. had earth wind and fire and alicia keys performing and it felt like a funeral oh my um it was just one of the most awkward things i had ever been to but i really do believe that losing breeds your fandom a lot more than winning um and that was probably the moment where you know i don't think any uh, New England Patriots Super Bowl from that point on will ever not be a, a huge moment for me. Wow. I have a, a good friend out here um, that has you know two young kids that he's bringing up now as as Boston fans on the West Coast. And I don't know, a couple of years ago, the there was a Super Bowl or there was a World Series or something that the Red Sox or the Patriots were in, and he just he said to me, you know, he goes, I kind of hope they lose just. In, in some weird way because he wanted to make his kids even more fans <laughs> wow. having them go through the struggle that he had gone through um, and in some sick, twisted way that maybe that meant, made sense. Right. Wow. I, I, do, do you think it's just because, you know, Boston fans were tortured for so long, like kind of across all the sports, um, and obviously since the new millennium have won basically everything, um, you 
do you feel like it's it you you miss the torture essentially? Um, I mean, we've had some torture certainly. Yeah. I mean, the, the Patriots have lost a couple. Nobody's looking. And... Nobody's sympathetic. I mean, as a Pats fan, nobody nobody's sympathetic about 2007. Yeah, no, I mean, as like, it turns out, it's it's a different kind of torture for sure. Um, like the torture that you you know the, the Cubs fans and the Red Sox fans and Indians fans and whatnot have gone through for a long time is just having your team be terrible. I mean, the torture is is really this like almost getting there and then losing in some catastrophic fashion, like the more 19- Buffalo Bills style torture. And Falcons now and Falcons, Falcons. But you know, there, there's something something to be said about achieving the highest pinnacle after you hit the lowest low. Yeah, and it's that yeah, gap. The hard thing, I think, the hard thing about the eighteen and one season is you talk about the highest highest pinnacle. And you just wonder if there's ever going to be a chance to get back there again to get to that level of, of achievement. And it, and it seems like almost impossible that that would be the case. Right. So it's, it's, it sucks to get that close and not have it happen, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jeff, the, the, one, one more question for you as we're kind of dissecting Pat's fans. What was it like when – I'm asking Shane as well. He's, he's, a, he's a diehard also. 28-12. And so it's kind of you can kind of see it. Mm-hmm. A lot of fan bases would have had that glimmer of hope. It would have had that oh, this isn't going to happen. And then it's twenty eight twenty, and now you can really see it. A lot of fan bases would have been oh, this is going to be so painful. We're not going to quite get there. Is it the case that being Pats fans and having this history of getting it done and having Brady on your side, did you have this strange confidence that it was actually going to get done? Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I mean, to a certain extent, um, yes, though indirectly. I mean, I, I feel like I've never been a confident Pats fan. Um, but you can look at the Atlanta Falcon, Falcons. Uh, what, what the Pats have done historically was definitely on the Falcons' mind. And they were they were it looked like a funeral over on that sideline. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gave me extra hope because it looked the, the Falcons looked shell shocked. <laughs> so that that's yeah. you know I, I didn't have a lot of faith. I'll be honest. Like I, it's not that I gave up or anything. Like people said, oh, did you give up? And it's like, no, I'm not going to stop watching the Super Bowl. So I'm like continuing to watch and continuing to hope. But the two two-point conversions really, for me, were the biggest thing. I, mm-hmm. I thought there was a good chance that they could, you know, get down there. And this is like the the whole idea if you bring this back to probability, right? I mean, like I'm fine with having four plays for them to get 10 yards all the way down, but one play for them to get whatever, two, three yards, I forget yeah. now where they do the two-point conversion from, that that to me is, is, you know, was the reason that I was worried. I mean, they had to get two of those. Right, and, and those are essentially much more coin flip kind of moments. Those two point conversions, yeah. as opposed They're to a drive where you've got you know you know m- multiple Absolutely. tries essentially. So we're talking to Jeff Ma. Jeff is a member of the famed MIT Blackjack team. He's currently senior director for analytics at Twitter. Um, very involved in sports analytics. I think your whole career, Jeff. You how, how does analytics influence the way you watch sports and watch football? And I, I would think that you know more analytically minded people are kind of. They might be feeling the pull of yeah we have Brady yeah we can get this done but you also have in your head what are the odds I mean what are the what's the probability a team down eight is actually going to win with whatever six minutes left How, Yeah I mean a, I think like there's a few ways that I think I look at sports differently than the the average sports fan and I think one of them is very, looking very dispassionately at a lot of the decisions that are made during the course of the game um, you know the article that I wrote for Wired was all about sort of this idea of there being a basic strategy in football or in coaching decisions. Um, I think that's true of 
um, every sport. And I think that generally managers and coaches in, in every sport get it wrong, uh, which is pretty incredible. And, you know, Wired Magazine, uh, Wired.com, sorry, asked me uh, before the Super Bowl, they're like, hey, can you write something right after the Super Bowl? And the, so I had to think a little bit about what the approach was going to be. And I was so confident that there were going to be glaring mistakes made by coaches in that game that I said, hey, this is the premise. I wrote the entire intro before the Super Bowl, oh, oh and it was gosh. all about the mistakes that were going to be made by the coaches and how coaches don't make optimal. Well, let me let me ask a question then. Until the the Falcons essentially lost the game by bad coaching, and we, could, we talked about this earlier, and we can disagree or agree whether or not they should have anticipated this. Up until that point, third say third mid third quarter, did you see any mistakes? I don't. I was trying to keep my eye on 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 coaching mistakes from the my limited knowledge, but I didn't really see any. So, what did you see? Um, no, I mean, yeah, I, I I basically said to the people that were at watching the Super Bowl with me, and I had like a small little party at my house, like ten to fifteen of us hanging out. Um, and you know, I said at that time, I'm like, man, this is. You know, and part of the reason was like I was just pouting. I was like, I don't, I don't even want to write write this article. I can't, I can't figure it out. And then when things started to unfold, uh, one of my buddies just turned to me and he goes, "You know, Atlanta's writing this article for you. Right? Um, these these guys are doing exactly, you know, what you said." And so, I think that you know, there it would have been a little bit harder to dissect some of the decisions. Some of the decisions would have been much smaller on the on the margin. Um, you know, it could have been interesting to talk about that first fourth down that that Belichick went for. I think there, I've heard in mainstream media some people say like, "Oh, not a lot of coaches would have gone for that," and I think that's bull. I think most coaches would have gone for that. As, as smart as as Bill is, that was a very obvious decision at that time um, to try to win the game. Uh, but you know, there are there. I probably would have had to cherry pick and look for a little a little bit more decisions here and there. Um, but generally, like I think, you know, I could have even thought a little bit about the play calling certainly like the josh mcdaniel play call to the screen to martellus bennett right. wonder what was going on there um uh, and and even like what's interesting is i wonder how bad that um pick six was that brady threw obviously it was it was catastrophic to some people but it may not be as catastrophic as people think because the reality is if they just throw an incompletion there, they have to keep a field goal there. And there's a pretty good chance that, you know, well, obviously Atlanta gets the ball back with a fair amount of time left. And there's a pretty good chance that they score a touchdown there, given the way their offense was playing at that time. So it could have been 21-3 in a lot of different ways. Um, and I actually was thinking when the Patriots got the ball back and they were moving and it looked like they might score a touchdown, like, gosh, this they might end up with 21-7 with, Atlanta not getting the ball back and being in a better situation than they would have kind of otherwise where it might have been, you know, 21-3. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Jeff Ma. Jeff's out in San Francisco now working with Twitter, but he's in, been involved with analytics and sports his whole career. Jeff, you've got a good view to look around the, the, the sports landscape across, beyond, you know, beyond just football. Where do you think sports analytics is making the greatest contribution right now? Where do you think the biggest edges are to be had from from a team who really deploy, deploys sports analytics? Well, there, that's two completely different questions. So the first question you asked is where is it making the biggest inroads? And I, I think it's in the NBA. Um, I think that the, the place, the real 
the real test and, and sort of like a lot of us that have been you know involved in this and, and I've been involved in this tangentially for what 15 years or something like that um, I think the biggest you know we always talked about when when sports analytics was was influencing on-field decision making on-field strategy that was going to be sort of the moment where you knew it, it had really reached the mainstream and you see that in the NBA obviously you see you know this is a few years now. Um, that this has been happening, but you see people valuing the corner three. I mean, the corner three is a perfect example of um, a higher expected value shot. It's yep. closer, they make it with a higher, but teams that not only shoot a lot of corner threes, but teams that actually understand to defend the corner three. I mean, from a strategy standpoint, NBA teams used to rotate off of the corner three for help, huh. and now they know not to. Now they know to stay at home on that. Um, and, and you see the, the NBA like pace and space. You see all these different things that NBA teams have figured out which were all analytically based and you know the, the organizations that that are really working are when the front office and the coach and the the um, everyone is all aligned around analytics so I think that's the, the, the place where you're seeing it have the biggest influence uh-huh. I think the place where it still has the most opportunity is in the NFL and what the reason there's opportunity is because generally I think it's still like just look at what we saw in the Super Bowl. Um, just look at what we you see all the time in every regular season game. It, it's not influencing on-field decision-making nearly as much as it should. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there should never be a time unless like the, the, the actual score of the game dictates it. There should never be a time that you're kicking a field goal inside of five yards mm-hmm. ever, mm-hmm. ever. I mean, that just doesn't even make sense. Like, the math for it is very, very simple. If you assume people assume that, like, you know, the NFL is because of the way it's scored, it's it's a you know binary outcome of, of seven points or zero points or three points. But every yard line, uh, every ten yards on the NFL field is worth roughly ten points. I'm uh, sorry, is worth point. roughly one point. Right. So if you kick a field goal inside of five yards, not only are you giving up an opportunity for an additional four points, but you're giving up probably 20, 25, 30 yards in field position, which is akin to giving it up, up right. another two to three points. Right. So what do you think so about, just, about the extra, the conversion? I think the mathematics is, is that's about, uh, expected value is about 1.05 or so points for a conversion, and the, and the two extra point, point conversion, two point conversion and, the, and, the, and the extra point is about 0.95 or so at this point. Nobody, I don't yeah. think anyone goes for, goes for, goes for conversions very often. Steelers, uh, Tomlin actually goes for conver- two point conversions, very yeah, frequently. But he goes for convert like nothing that Tomlin does makes any sense. It's all, <laughs> it's all in- no, it's all inconsistent. He goes for things like that on two point conversions, but then he won't go for. Yeah, he'll kick. He'll kick it when on the opponent's like you know forty five yard line so, or something but, like that. Punt it. Yeah. But Jeff, I mean, think about it, if, you, if you take the the blackjack point of view, where you're trying to get a that little extra edge on every opportunity. You would argue that you should be going for the two-point conversion every single time. Well, here's where here's where I'll agree. Here's where I'll kind of disagree with that. I just don't think we have enough sample size on two-point conversions to know that that number is indeed like the real number um, in terms of the actual. Well, it varies by team, I I suppose, if that's what you mean. What's that? It probably varies by team. I mean, some teams are better at it than other teams. I mean, but I think it's well. It's not just that a variable varies by team, but like how many compare it compare how many extra points get kicked versus how many two-point conversions like i'm just i'm just not i'm not confident enough in that number to take i mean there are much 
bigger glaring things that coaches do mm-hmm. for me to take them to task mm-hmm. than the two-point conversion. And, and I might be wrong on this because I haven't studied enough to, to know that that's the case. But if those are the numbers, yeah, of course I agree. Like, they, they should be going for it all the time. I mean, part of this stuff also is like game theory, right? Like, they're, if, if you are a team that goes for it all the time on two-point conversions, then potentially – your, the team that plays against you is going to prep a lot more for two-point conversions um, going into that game and may be in a better position to defend you. You know, like the, the, the ultimate one is the um, onside kick, right? Yeah, it's a, a huge difference in success kick. rate depending on whether they see it coming or not. Right. right. E- exactly, exactly. And also, like, you know, the surprise onside kick is, is recovered at anywhere from, you know, 60 to 75% of the time versus – the non-surprise, which is like 25 percent of the time, and if you do, if you become a team that's known for doing it, you're never going to be a surprise onside kick anymore. Jeff, let's talk in the few minutes we have remaining about your work at Twitter. You're basically running analytics at Twitter now after having um, sold a company to those guys. We've talked about this mindset and, and that you that you bring to watching football, and we talk about the use of analytics in football. What have you seen as as a manager, you must bring some of that same mindset to Twitter. Do you think the same advantages exist for managers who approach their non-sports decision-making with some of these tools? Uh, so, I mean, like, you're kind of talking more in the, the world of human capital management, which, you know, obviously there was a company that I started in that space, and I know you, you run a very cool people analytics conference over at Warden. I think generally, like looking for data or looking to use data in, in non-traditional ways, um, specifically around trying to understand things that um, our subjective minds um, won't necessarily understand, is always going to be a great opportunity. So, leveraging the fact that there is sort of this digital footprint of what people produce, um, and also understanding what patterns that you see in people's work and, and how that can make you understand people that that need more help or need success um it's that's definitely an area that's that's pretty interesting to me i i I don't think it's quite there yet and i think that there needs to be a lot more foundational work to really understand how to do it Mm -hmm. um certainly there's certain verticals where i think it could it could be more interesting than others Mm -hmm. do you think if, if if we looked at if we ask your boss how would he say you differ from other managers at twitter would it would it relate to your kind of blackjack probabilistic approach or would it be something else? Um, you know, honestly, I I don't know if I, I think like where I so what I what I've always done from a people management standpoint is 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 make people believe that I care about them because I do. Um, and I don't know if if he would actually say that because I think that this is an area where I'm, um, you know, I have sort of 45 people that work on my team and they are they are human beings that have a very um you know working on twitter twitter is a very special company and a very special product and you know we're constantly under scrutiny by the press and everything like that and to work at twitter you have to truly love twitter and to work and enjoy um what you're doing you have to love the people that you work with so for me beyond sort of numbers and money ball and all that kind of stuff what, what's most important to me is to make people understand at, you know the, the people that work with me that they're working for a higher purpose than just themselves they're working for the team and that they're working for someone 
that cares about them and that they really trust and that they can trust to look out for them. So I guess what I'm saying is, is I'm kind of going against a lot of the money ball type of dispassionate management and, and management to me is really about the relationship you establish with the individual and, and the, the way that you can communicate to them their purpose and the higher purpose and, that they have um, for working at in the job that they're working in. Very interesting, Jeff. Appreciate it. I, I suspect one of the things you bring is all of that, and then also you've got the analytic horsepower. But to prioritize that is, and to have that perspective is really interesting. Appreciate your taking the time to be with us, Jeff, especially this time of day. Wish you the best with the work you're doing. Okay. Thanks, Kate. You bet. That was Jeff Ma. Jeff is a member of the famed MIT Blackjack team. He is currently Senior Director for Analytics. You can follow him. He's a great Twitter follow. He's at Jeff Ma. He also is an author. He has a book, The House Advantage, Playing the Odds to Win Big in Business. It's a great book he published a few years ago. can highly recommend it. That is another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We've been here two hours. We're here every Wednesday morning for two hours live talking sports analytics. Big thank you to Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer, Matt Johnson, our producer. We missed Eric Bradlow. Eric will be back with us. This has been Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey this week. Come back and join us next week for another episode. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.